1: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast with the New Books Network. My name is Brian Scott, and today we are joined by a very special guest, Professor Timothy Brennan, who will be speaking with us today about the recent publication of his book, "A Place, uh, Places of Mind, A Life of Edward Said, published by Farrar, Strauss, and Garreau in March 2021. Timothy is a professor in both the departments of cultural studies and comparative literature and English at the University of Minnesota. He is the author of a number of seminal books in literary studies, including Borrowed Light, Vico, Hegel, and the Colonies, published by Stanford University Press in 2014, Secular Devotion, Afro-Latin Music, and Imperial Jazz, published by Verso in 2008, and Wars of Position, The Cultural Politics of Left and Right, published by Columbia University Press in 2006, among others. Welcome, Timothy, to the New Books Network. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you for inviting me. That's great to have. So there's a lot of things. um, So there's so much to talk about with this comprehensive and and very, you know, meticulously researched intellectual biography of Edward Said, um, who has been such an inspirational figure, not just in literary studies, but really one of the most important public intellectuals of the 20th century. Before jumping into who Said was as a thinker and intellectual? Can you start off by saying something about what led to this book, and how you came to write it, uh, and gain access to uh, so many of the intimate details and documents you used to research it? Uh, sure. Yeah,
0: that's uh, quite a comprehensive question. It's kind of hard to answer. I, you know, I, I knew Edward uh, personally, of course, not just as a, a mentor. He was somebody uh, who I think opened doors that he didn't quite. You know, completely finish. He he left a legacy of work to to pick up with and to carry on. And I guess I've come to see my own work as attempting to do that, not always in the same way that he would. But uh, one of the things that made me interested in writing this biography was that dimension of things. I'd written a lot about him, maybe thirteen essays, some of which I wrote when uh, he was still alive, and. I knew that if I didn't do this biography, somebody else would. I, I didn't really propose the biography, actually. Uh, people came to me. I got a call from a New York literary agent, Andrew Wiley, uh, which doesn't happen every day, you know, out of the blue. And he said that there was a lot of interest in New York uh, in commercial publishing uh, circles for an intellectual biography of Said and that he heard that I was the one to do it. So I didn't know if I could pull off something like this. I'd never written a full-scale biography before. so. I had to really think about it, but uh, you know, I went forward for those reasons because I really felt committed, you know, to his legacy. But I also I wanted to capture the personality that he was, uh, the performer of himself, you know, in the public sphere, uh, as well as uh, the ideas that he, you know, is so famous for having promoted. So, um, the thing is that, of course. Said, as a very major figure, has been written about by a number of other people, uh, not only me. But this was the one opening, I think, that the family of Saeed was welcoming. So they put me in contact with people who would not have spoken to other people who might be undertaking a biography. Hence, I was you know, given access to materials that, that other people didn't ever have or ever see, uh, personal things, things from you know the uh, family uh, archives, as it were. There is, however, you know, a number of things that are available to the public that nobody's just taken the, the time before this to kind of work through. In, in my case, one of the materials that I've found the most interesting were his student files at uh, the uh, finishing school in Massachusetts that he went to before college and then at, in college and graduate school. You see the side of him there when he's writing applications. Uh, that uh, you know, as a very young man, you see a personality that is really completely missing from his uh, autobiographical writing. Uh, you know, in the New York Review of Books or in uh, his memoir Out of Place. I could go on in this way, but I mean, these, these were there were there were so many different kinds of materials, hundreds of people to interview from his childhood and so on. But the thing that I really found the most revealing. Was him talking in his own voice uh, not to the public, but to these people he's trying to convince that you know should let him into their schools, talking about his his desires and and what he wanted to become a medical missionary in the Middle East was at one point what he wanted to become a businessman in the middle East, um an educator in the Middle East, but always thinking that he would move back to the near East.
1: so did the family? play a role in, in requesting you or, or was that, um, some, you know, because of your, you know, previously, you know, established relationship was that. Well, was I'm that, assuming something that when, a, when Andrew, that Andrew
0: Riley was, says that he's heard that I'm the one to do it, that it must, it must have been a judgment that came from members of the family, probably his, his, uh, widow, Mariam, uh, who was needless to say, you know, invaluable to me as were all of his family, his sisters uh, who live in Beirut or his children. um, They're the ones who really were best poised to give me information that nobody would be privy to. And they were willing to. So I'm I'm guessing, and it's only a guess, so I really, really don't know how to answer your question definitively, but my guess is that they probably asked around, they probably based what they uh, decided on the public talks uh, that I had given and said that all things considered, I was probably the right one to write this biography. So I'm I'm assuming that that's how it happened.
1: Great, um, yeah. So I mean, so like I, I mentioned, um, you know, over over email, um, I kind of want to want to focus a little bit on many of the things that um, that the book challenges, you know, in in its detailed and. and comprehensive research about kind of received knowledge about, um, Saeed. So, um, and, and, you know, specifically about his, you know, you know, who he was, his relationship to certain, um, fields and, and, um, and, and you know, and areas and also his, his sort of, uh, intellectual development. Um, so, so there's a there's a few areas that, that I kind of you know just want to ask you about. Like, um, so for example, there's this this kind of notion, this kind of like received received knowledge um about Saeed was politically activated um in 1967, where he he went from this kind of um, you know, this this bookish kind of um you know literary scholar, um, to a, a kind of, uh, awakens, um, you know, you know, someone who, who was politically awakened, um, at that moment. And, and your, your book kind of paints uh, a different picture about his, um, his, uh, the relationship for him between politics, between politics and literature, um, in itself, And also, um, and also how he, he saw himself, um, before that and, and how he, he was kind of always, um, you know, and maybe even centrally engaged with, with the, the sort of questions that, that, um, that he's, you know, kind of best known for. So, I mean, can you say something about, um, about those relationships and, and possibly how he saw himself and, and. And um how how he saw the re- maybe, maybe something about the relationship between politics and literature um you know in in his mind
0: I mean you know the the myth about his becoming politically aware and active and angry in nineteen sixty seven as a result of the six day war is one that he's partly responsible for because he, uh, in that very year uh, writes actually the very first piece of, of, of writing where he comes out and says, look, I'm a, I'm a Palestinian and, and I'm committed to this cause. Uh, he does this for a Columbia um, alumni magazine and he berates himself for having uh, bitten his tongue earlier and not let people know that he was Palestinian to kind of fly beneath the radar, as it were. So w- what I understand him to be doing there is chastising himself for not having become organizationally active Prior to 1967, this is quite separate, though, from his being uh, politically aware or or being involved in in political acts, because he certainly did that before 1967 and consistently. First of all, it would have been impossible for him not to have been politically aware and active uh, in Egypt because of the hordes of refugees uh, coming uh, uh, coming out of Palestine that were pouring into Cairo and that his aunt Nabia took a lot of uh, trouble to um you know take care of raise money on behalf of and and so on it was absolutely heart rendering uh heart-rending rather rather and he really was moved by this his close political uh friends uh actually not friends they're older than he is but people that he emulates deeply and uh did throughout his life were were were, were communists you know uh, working under uh, the Nasser regime, uh, the Nasser regime itself. It's, it's, it's a revolution in, and, and Kyrene society. And his mother was, was pro Nasser. His mother-in-law was, was, uh, was a Nasserite. I mean, so there's all of these kinds of uh, things, but it's also that, you know, the students that he had at Columbia, even though he played a kind of, I don't know, cagey game, I would say, as an early academic, he was ambitious and he wanted to advance himself. So he wore masks. He didn't uh, uh, make it clear what he was really thinking uh, about American society's hatred of of the Cold War mentality, the lobotomized cheerleading, as he as he sometimes put it, of the uh, American uh, intellectual classes. You know, he, he he kept that to himself, but he was much franker with his students and his Jewish students, for example. And he would would uh, debate uh, the politics of the Middle East. This is prior to nineteen sixty seven. So, um, when he was a, a student at Mount Hermon, right, the school that he goes to right before he attends college, right, a high school, he's, um, he's speaking publicly about being a Palestinian. When you look at his student uh, uh, papers and his notes, it's very clear that he's systematically studying uh, the relationship of politics and letters, that he's p- particularly drawn to people like Plato and Dante and Milton, the ones who are unashamedly. Um, didactic. (laughs) He's very frankly embracing that. Um, Swift, who he almost wrote a very, very large book on um, and was really dedicated to in the early years when he was at at school, when he was first teaching at Columbia, um, is a model of the the writer as activist and politician, um, a diplomat, a counselor to kings, uh, Ibn Khaldun from the Middle Ages, same kind of figure, right? With that same kind of, uh, of joining together of the uh, political and the literary. So the total picture makes it very clear. Um, the only thing that changes in 67 is that Ibrahim Abul hod who had been his friend for some years by that point, um, convinces him to get organizationally active in the AAUG. And he, uh, he does, and then the rest is history.
1: Great. So, so what would you say? I mean, I mean, so, you know, I, um, what would you say that, that his relationship uh, that he, how did he see the relationship between, between literature and politics? How, how, and, and how much of, how much was he kind of on his own in, in that regard at the period when, when he started, um, even, you know, prior to, to Orientalism, um, uh, how kind of out on a limb would you say that he was in in that kind of, in his understanding of of um, how, you know, intertwined those, those two things were?
0: Well, this is one of his great accomplishments, and it only could have been somebody with his personality and rhetorical gifts who could have pulled it off. Edward Said was a child of the heyday. Of the anti-colonial liberation movements of the 1950s 60s and 70s this is his point of departure and this is his spirit he's interested in the political control of states and the development of an underdeveloped third world that's his project um the project that was perceived as being political by the cultural left of the universities beginning in the reagan thatcher counter-reformation of the 1980s and thereafter was very different. It was a critique of modernity and, uh, and uh, the establishment of identity as the uh, pole uh, from which to enunciate one's political positions. Uh, these are very, very different, ultimately incompatible positions. So did he go out on a limb? Um, yeah, but he was careful about how he did it. Uh, he's the master of indirection and uh, of, of mollifying uh, language that can play a double game uh, the vague coinage was something that he could uh, use to to great effect to create symbolic uh, weightiness to ideas like you know affiliation, affiliation, the the anti dynastic, the term Orientalism itself. These would be example of, examples of vague coinages. These techniques are ones that he learned from literary criticism. It is Edward Said who is the one who's arguing that the Vocabulary of the literary seminar room, like you know, the n- notion of representation or of narrative or the image, are ultimately political weapons uh, in in the sense that constituencies are built and movements formed on the basis of who tells the most persuasive story. And so he is constantly hammering away at the fact that, as he puts it in in Orientalism, representation is not a reflection of the world. It's a part of the world. It's as much the world as things are. And this is a notion, this is a way of thinking that he entirely gets from his profession as a literary critic. So on the one hand, he's thinking of the enormous political authority that can be granted to an intellectual in the European sense, if you will, right? That the the grand sort of disengaged uh, knower, right? The person with no political stake, the one without any direct political power, the one who is to be trusted because they know a lot, but what they don't know, they're curious about and open to, right? This kind of notion of the humanist intellectual is the very figure that he creates for himself. This is his persona. And it's the one that allows him, I think, to be listened to in so many different venues, partly because as a humanist, he's unthreatening. You know, he's, he's somebody who is um, uh, not to be toyed with because he can run circles around you rhetorically. He can defeat you on the nightly news shows. This too comes from his art of speaking that he learned as a literary critic. To, to know something about the, the way that language creates ideas and ideas create movements. I mean, this is something that only literary critics properly study, right? The mischief that goes on as one finds a coded ways to express their ideas in language. This is something that he's fixated on. More to the point, I think that he really uses these combination of theoretical notions that he studies as a literary critic. Um, it, Quite, quite consciously to create what he calls mass density and referential power, right? He, he figured out a way to put his finger on the pulse of, of the mainstream and to create a persona that people have found popular and inviting and welcoming. And he, made, he built bridges among a variety of constituencies and therefore could talk to a number of different constituencies at the
1: same time. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that actually reminds me of, um, you know, a recent essay by, uh, I don't know how recent it is actually, but, um, uh, an essay by, uh, where he, um, he kind of engages in, in the debate that that I was actually just about to ask you about, um, you know, regarding Saeed's, um, I don't know how would call it, uh, Marxism, but, but his, his, um, affiliations, um, in, in those areas and, 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 um, it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, uh, it feels like a back and forth between, um, you know, Dean and, and Chibber, uh, a little bit where, um, you know, you know, Vivek Chibber is, is obviously dismissive and, 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 uh, Seamus Dean is arguing that, um, you know, it was, it was a very, very tactical, uh, move on, on Saeed's part to, to kind of play, play those, um, uh affiliations or or leanings down in order to to adopt a more sort of uh popular voice in order to gain a greater um more sympathetic audience for uh the palestinian cause um so i wanted i want to ask you about that um and i and i want to and and just just to add to that um uh, and to kind of jump into, to Orientalism itself, um, because that is kind of the, the book that received um, a lot of pushback from Marxists. Um, so I, I just want to ask you, um, because you spend a lot of time in the book um, de- developing um, and, and talking about his, his most lasting influences, which, which are, you know, as you say, uh, Gramsci and Lukács and, um and, possibly to to a, a lesser degree adorno i don't I don't know if you know, I don't know if you would agree with that or not but um can you say something about um you know continuing with 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 the conversation that, that that we're having but also say something about his relationship to to marxist thought and to those thinkers and and how it how how that played a role for him intellectually right. and, and maybe how he navigated that
0: right okay um, well, look, it, it's a complicated question, obviously, but the one thing to begin with, I suppose, is to remind ourselves where Edward is coming from and what Marxism would have meant to somebody with his particular biography, right? Um, he's thinking in part about the sectarian quarrels that are occurring among the various uh, national liberation groups in the Middle East in which Marxism played a very, very uh, central role, obviously. But a Marxism that, from his point of view, was um, adopted too cheaply, right? That um, it became a question of kind of taking wholesale a body of thought uh, from Europe uh, that had not been painfully worked through and that had not been uh, carefully uh, adapted to Middle Eastern conditions. So... You know the very first uh, faction of the PLO that Edward was drawn to, although he never he never joined it, was the PFLP, and uh, this would be you know the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine and uh, and and one of their subgroups um, as well. But he, you know, this is probably the far left. I mean, I know that this is debatable, and some people who know this history better than I have pointed out that maybe they're not the far left. But the point is, is that they're a traditionally um for, they're they're more traditionally involved in a kind of soviet marxism this is what they're interested in and uh, and and what they take their their point that's its their point of departure so he he's very attracted to this group but he you know decides i think in time that this was not the way forward they became uh, sectarian within the PLO organization they were not um, the kind of organization that um was uh, eventually going to uh, prevail. And they were hostile to the idea that he was developing at, at the time that really way forward was not a military one, but one to win the moral high ground, uh, much like the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa. So he he, he doesn't, uh, he, he veers away from that. So he's thinking, first of all, about the kind of uh, tired and from his point of view, entirely inadequate Marxism of the national liberation movements in the Middle East. He's also thinking about the purely symbolic Marxism of uh, the American Academy. I mean, he once told me, I didn't include this in the book, but you know, he'd say, Fred Jameson, Fred Jameson, that guy's about as political as that chair over there, right? That's that's how Edward talked to me. So, you know, this turning of Marxism into a reading technique is, um, is something that he was, he found anathema. So my Argument would be that Edward was not a Marxist for a number of reasons. Partly because he's too interested in psychology and the psychoanalytic to be one. Partly because he has a liberal political strain within him that is a a hatred of any system and uh, a kind of revulsion uh, of being uh, tied to the discipline of a single political organization. Right. So there's there's those kinds of factors in play. But when all is said and done. When you look at the the force of his intervention uh, in in the period in which he was an intellectual, he is revitalizing and bringing centrally into the discussion Marxist intellectuals and making it okay for uh, the highly professionalized and ambitious uh, students and professors uh, to to talk about these people in the same way. he 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 makes it okay to do this, right? by talking about Gramsci and Lukács and the way that he does, the way he talks about Raymond Williams, um, the way he talks about Lucien Goldman. Uh, then there's the, the the political inspirations of his life. I've already mentioned that, you know, the the two or three people that are the closest to being those that he emulates. In fact, he even feels himself inadequate in the face of, because he didn't martyr himself the way that they did. He didn't give up his, his you know, uh, what is it? The perks and, uh, the 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 fame that he had in his career in order to to follow the political path that these people did they're all communists so I mean uh, it's a very mixed story and he's often criticizing Marxism from the left rather than the right so there's no doubt in my mind that it's a very complicated situation but he's definitely I think in in, in a period of post structuralist hegemony telling. The world that it's much better to talk about issues of class and of humanism and of, of political mobilization and of liberating the oppressed. And this is something that brings him constantly back to uh, thinkers who are Marxist intellectuals. He also, I think, incorporates at the level of methodology some of their claims, Uh, very much so. Ideology critique is a very, very important part of what Edward is doing, and he's getting it from these thinkers. The study of geography, the relationship of geography and language in colonial encounters. These are things that he's getting from these Marxist intellectuals. He does a class analysis later in his life of uh, the the Arab states. So uh, there's many more things to say, but that I think is uh, how I would put it right now.
1: Okay, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm also interested in in some of the other intellectual lineages um you outlined in the book. Uh, so not only his his kind of vexed relationship with uh with you know post structuralism as as you just mentioned and, and so-called high theory, um, as well as uh you know what what became later post-colonial theory. Um, but I wanna I wanna actually ask Specifically, because because this name comes up a lot with with uh, with Said and, and in, with his uh, intellectual lineage, um, uh, Vico. Um, so, since I, I figured you know you'd be a good person to ask, since you've written a book on Vico, um, <laughs> um, so I was wondering if you could just explain or elaborate on what Vico. Did for for Saeed why why is there this this affinity and and what role if any did this have to do with with Saeed's kind of um uh I guess staunch defense of of humanism I, I guess if I could put it that way I, I you know it <laughs>
0: I, I I wish that everyone could um could read Vico and uh uh, appreciate what, what Vico is doing. It's it's really one of the great events uh, intellectually for me in my entire life to have finally, and it took me a while, uh, grasp what Vico was talking about in the new science. I, I had it on my orals list when I was still at Columbia studying with Edward. And uh, honestly, at the time, as a graduate student, I couldn't make head or tail of it. I had no idea what he was talking about. But let, let me say what I think is important about Vico in uh, Edward's career and why he talks about him so often. Vico, <laughs> first of all, was on the European margins. He was a Neapolitan intellectual at the time that all of the you know, kind of interest was occurring uh, far north, right, in the Netherlands. So he kind of was old fashioned by the standards of the late 17th and early 18th century when he was intellectually active. These movements in the North that were so, you know, kind of cause celebs and everybody was talking about in his day, were the movements generated by Descartes and Spinoza and Leibniz. So there was kind of a turn towards the sciences, the natural sciences, or a kind of austere rationalism, and away from what really motivated Vico, which was the study of philology, which is to say the uh, the, the, the faithful recovery of what happened in the human past by the close and disciplined reading of texts. That's what philology is. And no place more than Naples excelled in it. I mean, they were absolutely brilliant at it for for centuries before Vico. Vico inherited that. So Vico comes along and he tells the history of prehistory. That's what the new science is all about. He's, He's talking about what happened when human beings came out of the forests for the first time and became civilized and how they managed to become civilized. Civilized in this case means how did they establish laws um, to protect themselves from one another? How did they establish the institution of marriage and, and burial? And and what role does language have in this whole process? So Vico has this theory of uh, the speaking of of the ancients in poetic characters, that poetry was not something you did to kind of entertain or it wasn't like a ritual act. It was simply the way that people communicated with one another, they communicated with one another in poetry. Um, So you can see that there's a a defense of the humanist versus the scientist that's implicit in the, you know, kind of recovery of Vico. But the other attractions are just as important that when, when Vico tells this story, He's talking about the ages of humans. And Vico is saying that his story is not going to be about the sacred history of the Jews, because we all know that the Jews are the chosen of God, and they therefore they have a divine history, which is narrated in the Bible. So Vico isn't going to talk about uh, the Jews. He's going to talk about the Gentiles, right? Gentile being a word that comes from gens, right, the early uh, extended families that formed the first cities. So you, you have this other angle that obviously going to be uh, you know kind of metaphorically resonant with Edward's project, which is Gentile history, history of the humans that were not chosen by God and therefore had to make the world themselves. That's Fico's story, right? And, and then there's many things that go on within it that part of the, I, I won't go on for too much longer, just a few more ideas. That that Vico is in telling this story, talking about class struggle, and he's talking about colonialism, and he's talking about the the, the movement from the world, uh, the age of the gods, which sounds like it's a good age, but it's it's an age of horrible barbarism from his point of view, to the age of men, which is really the place to be. It's when people like build their own laws and they establish certain standards of of social equality. Okay, he also Vico and it's a very important part of his story, wants to dispel the notion that any one people, right, any one nation or ethnicity is responsible for the creation of the things that matter most to human beings in their civilization. He's saying that it was a joint and communal act. Everybody independently came to the very same conclusions about civilization. This is obviously very important for the kind of story that Edward wants to tell. And finally, there's this railing in Vico against the conceit of the scholars, right? The, the, the scholars who think they know the past because they apply all of the principles and all of the, eth- you know, the, the ethos that they find to be normal in their own age to earlier ages. Whereas Vico is trying to say that is an illusion. Uh, we, we have to understand that you have to calibrate differently that people in different periods kind of underwent a completely different material experience and therefore their norms and values have to be understood on their own terms rather than ours. So I think you can see from some of these things why Vico is so important to Edward.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I want to, I want to kind of turn to a, a, a different area of, of your of your book and and of of his kind of intellectual formation, um, which actually kind of, you know, I guess superficially a a little bit reminds me of of Jameson a little bit, which is that he seems very split between, and and I don't know if this is fair or not, so, you know, please correct me. um, But, he seems very split between French and, and German thought. So, so kind of, uh, 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 or contemporary French and German thought. So, so semiotics and, and structuralism uh, on the one hand and, and kind of Marxism and, and dialectics on the other hand. Um, so, so there's this, so there's this kind of dual sidedness that, that you don't see, um, in, that you see often in very rich thinking, I I guess is is how how I I guess how I would put it. But um, for Saeed, there's another very important element that, that you, you know, spend a lot of time on in your book um, in his, uh, you know, and perhaps, perhaps the most formative aspect of his intellectual identity. Um, And that is, uh, as you say, he was, very consciously an arab intellectual um, and so this is uh, you know also as you mentioned one of the most um, uh, missed points uh, you know that, that critics miss about orientalism and and kind of where it fits um, and kind of like the 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 realm that he was working within the space that that he was in at the time was was very much um that of of this this kind of these uh you know arab intellectual currents um and that seems to me to bring out a lot of the um you know like like you know as you said before it's not just you know representation isn't isn't just a thing that you study it actually is part of the world and and for um you know an arab intellectual it would be it would have much more um you know, ranging wide-ranging impacts. Um, what what representation can do it, and and the impact that it has. Um, it takes on a kind of uh, activist um, uh, conversation, if you you know look at it that way. Um, so, can you say something just about you know something about how he saw himself as an Arab intellectual, and in kind of what this meant for for his work um, for him and his work. Yeah. Yeah, he um,
0: is not only by the fact that he is, of course, ethnically an Arab and grew up in Cairo, um, not only by the fact that his entire life corresponded to the rise and consolidation of the state of Israel, or that he had his professional life in the United States, where Israel's main abetter would be found. Um, All of those things would lead him and many other people in a similar position to uh, question their own identity, feel ill at ease uh, in their identity in these hostile surroundings. Uh, And that was certainly a part of what uh, made him a conflicted man. But I think that It's important to notice that there are things that have nothing to do with his identity, that have more to do with his psyche and his personality, that contributes to this, this issue of, uh, I wouldn't so much call it a confusion of identity as I would um, a a feeling of um, uh, being 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 torn and uh, and and unresolved and unfulfilled, um, a constant burning drive to be something else, uh, the, the, the need to change one's conditions of existence uh, simply because one is unable to uh, stand the lack of change. I mean, the, the, these, there's things like like this that I think we need to take account when we're talking about Edward. But the point is, is that, that Edward was um, given famously a Western education but he was surrounded by some of the most influential Arab intellectuals of the age. They were close family friends. They were people whose homes he stayed at. These were people he would debate things with over dinner as a very, very young man. There are people who opened doors for him at at universities in the Middle East and in in the West. at a later point in his life. So I'm talking about the great, you know, anti-communist right-wing Lebanese diplomat, Charles Malik, uh, a powerful intellectual studied with uh, Alfred North Whitehead in in England and and Heidegger in Germany. Um, I'm talking also about Constantine Zurich, the person who coined the term Nakba, the disaster, which refers to the founding of the State of Israel in 1948. Who uh, who wrote a, a very very powerful book on the Nakba that is an attempt to uh, sketch out a kind of political program and plan for the Middle East and how it should orient self, itself orient itself towards the West what it should take from the West and what it should not so he's he's involved in this way and through such figures in the traditions of the Nahda right the 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 Enlightenment, you might call it, right? The, the Arab intellectual movements of the late 19th century up through the 20th century uh, that are constantly focusing on the need to not only understand but to appreciate Western culture and to take certain elements from it, particularly science and rationality. But by the same token, Edward is very, very keenly aware that when it comes to literary science, when it comes to the language, in fact, of Arabic, that the Arab intellectual has certain advantages over the Western intellectual, that especially in the medieval era of, you know, the, the, the great Arab awakening and the, you know, translation of the Greek classics that created, you know, the Renaissance ultimately in Europe uh, in time. I mean, he, he's thinking that there are these resources that Arab intellectual life Uh, presents one with, that uh, need to be cultivated in mind. So he he systematically studies these intellectuals who are the, you know, I don't know, the the, the ones influenced in his own day by Latnata, you know, Clovis Maksud, for example, or Albert Hurani, or Abdallah Laroui, and, um, and others. And I'm saying that when he's writing his books, he is sitting down and working through all of those who went before him, who are Arab intellectuals and who came, many of them, to the United States and were part of uh, American academia. I wouldn't say that he copied them, but he was aware of their work, worked through it, internalized it, and it guided him. In the case of Malik, the argument I'm making is that almost every major theme in Edward's work was derived from Charles Malik which is quite surprising when you find how politically opposite they are to one another. The only other person I could mention in this context is a different kind of um, influence. Once again, a Marxist, Sadiq al-Azm, the Syrian bad boy Marxist that he's very close friends to during his political awakening in the early 1970s when he's writing the book Beginnings in Beirut. And if you're looking for a book by Edward that really is about the Arab dilemma, about being an Arab intellectual, it's Beginnings. It's not Orientalism. Beginnings is about the dilemma of the Arab intellectual who is forced to locate the origins of their thought in an alien and oppressive culture. And therefore, it's about substituting the notion of an origin with a beginning, since a beginning is something we make we're not simply presented with as a fait accompli. And one can have many beginnings. One can always begin again. And so it's about the problem of imitation, of being a mimic man, but it's really about how it is possible, and this he gets from Vico, it's it's possible to imitate in an original way. And he's, he's really, really looking at this period of his life. This is the early 1970s. Uh, beginnings comes out in 1975. He's really, really looking for something that resembles an authentic and indigenous uh, Arab intellectual lead. He's trying to formulate that, and Beginnings is probably his most serious effort at that time.
1: So a lot of uh, you know a lot of what you what you just said, um, and a lot of those links are are often. Really surprisingly overlooked in in at least all of the conversations about Saeed that, that I've come across, and you know, in terms of, of of books about him or or, or um, essay collections. Um, why do you think is is there a reason why why those those links and, and those lineages are are kind of missed? Um, yeah, I think I think there's there's very Sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead. Um and, and I mean it's just it's it just a rehashing of, of kind of the, the same the same a lot of the same points about about Said and, and no one seems to really be looking for them. <laughs> one,
0: Yeah, I mean one, one of the downsides of the the mastery of cultural assimilation that not only Edward but some some other immigrants um uh display, right? this absolutely pitch perfect performance of being an American that Edward could do. And he was American. He was born an American. You know, this is something that a lot of people didn't know either, that by virtue of his father's American citizenship would come to the United States during World War I to escape the Ottoman draft. At the time, the children of such people, uh, even if born abroad, as Edward was, um, could be American citizens. So he was an American citizen even in Cairo, which made him kind of an outsider along with many other dimensions of his personality and background there, as well as in the United States. He wasn't at home really in Cairo uh, any more than he was at home in the United States. But So one of the reasons people don't look for this or don't really grant it is they, they don't see him that way. They see him as an American. They see him as an American who has an affiliation with or a political a commitment to, kind of a projection upon, uh, a, a reality that by name and by uh, heritage uh, are are his, but which aren't really his, right? So um, this, this ability to mask the degree to which he was an Arab man. I mean, this is a person who, who, who would speak in Arabic in his sleep, right? This is a person who could uh, converse in Kyrene or Palestinian uh, Arabic uh, to uh, friends and uh, did constantly. In fact, got angry at those who knew Arabic who would speak to him only in English. So, you know, these are the sides of him that he would not let be seen by other people. Or you'd have to be uh, privy to, you know, his, his life in a way that many people were not who Followed him very closely and considered him friends. You know, Ed, I was a friend with Edward, but so was a thousand other people. He's very, very convivial and, and remembers everybody's names and their partners' names, and he's that kind of person. So he's making everyone feel that they're very close to him when he's really only letting you see what he wants you to see. So that's part of my answer to you. But the, the other answer, so people don't suspect it. But I think the other side of it is that people just don't know the material. I mean, you'd have to go and read his correspondence. Uh, you'd have to go read his uh, school essays or his applications uh, to a university. You'd have to um, talk to people who knew him in Beirut in, in 1972. Um, you'd have to know certain essays that he wrote only in Arabic. I mean, one of the most important essays of his entire career is, um, is written in 1972, Uh, in English. He wrote it in English. It was translated by others into Arabic. He could have written it in Arabic, but he didn't. He wrote it in English. Um, And it is kind of the dry run of beginnings, and it is all about us, where the us refers to the Arab intellectual. And he's he's writing what he's attempting in this essay, what he calls a psycho history of the Arab mind, which is a very interesting Thing for him to say, since he's so uh, witheringly critical in Orientalism of the you know pro-Israel hacks who are busy trying to psychoanalyze the Arab mind, you know, as though there were only one. Right, this kind of reductive way of talking about the you know hidden terrorist instincts of of the Arab personality and you know so on and so forth. Uh, this this is a funny thing for him to be concerned with, but that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's exactly what he says he's doing. So if, you know, if you're, if you're familiar with this kind of material, of course, you would look at these other influences and it's not that it's not, it's not alluded to. I mean, if you, if you look at the uh, article his kind of coming out essay that he wrote in 1967 for the uh, uh, Columbia alumni magazine, he talks about his influences very openly and they're all Arabs. So, um, it's, it's funny that, you know, as you point out, that people haven't uh, taken him up on that or followed through on that. But that is, there is bio, there's a very fantastic book, by the way, that's, that's just come out that explores the relationship between Saeed and uh, Charles Malik um, that I, I have to call, Wallout, the guy's name is W-A-L-H-O-U-T, great, great H-O-U-T, a very good book. So people are beginning to do it now, but yeah, it hasn't been done for a while. And I think it's really mostly just um, not knowing the materials.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so I guess building off of that, um, what would you say is most underst uh, w- most misunderstood about Sayed, um, you know, just, just in terms of n- not just even in terms of his, his, um, you know, like intellectual biography, but, but just, just like, you know, as well, you, I think, you I think, discover
0: yeah, I, yeah, I think that the way I'd answer that is this. He, he's somebody who obviously had many different audiences. Um, he is a best-selling author and an award-winning author, but he's also writing the kind of material in one part of his career that only some of his readers care about, and that he's writing things in other parts of his career that only some of his readers care about. It's very hard to find somebody who's, who really cares about all of it. Equally. So given that that's the case, so, you know, in other words, um, he's appealing to people who are high school students in Israel. He's appealing to people who are um, in Palestinian, you know, solidarity organizations. He's appealing to uh, area studies specialists who are historians and not literary critics. And obviously he's appealing to a lot of people who read literature for a living. You know, uh, humanists in the universe. So there's lots of these different constituencies. You know, some sometimes he's talking to people who are just from the Middle East who want, you know, their side of the story told or to, to see kind of brought back to life again. You know, the, the 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 world that has now vanished in, you know, Jerusalem and Beirut and and Cairo back in the years that he was living there and that he captured so well in his memoir. So you know, you've got all these competing constituencies and they're they're not all seeing it. So I would say that most people, when they think about Edward Said, would think about a literary critic on the one hand, or they'd think about somebody who is a very, very effective public spokesperson for uh, Palestine. And they would judge him, I would say, on the basis of the one or the other. So I think what they're missing is that Said's great achievement was not in either of these areas. He's very accomplished in both of these areas, but that's not his achievement. His achievement was to bring an image of the humanities into the center of the political discussion in the United States. He creates a discourse that, can, that people can understand that shows why the humanities matter and why it is the figure of the intellectual. And here I don't mean professor. I don't mean that. I don't mean a literary critic. Who, you know is a professor at a university I mean the intellectual right the all-rounder uh, the public sphere commentator the one who sets new agendas the one who can imagine a world that does not exist the one who's very specifically and and consciously not useful to business right or 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 people's notions and their everyday lives somebody who's thinking where we should be, not where we are. And and so he brings that notion of the intellectual in in a way that was really only found in Europe to the United States, in a very, very technocratic, anti-intellectual, rightward tending America. This to me is what people don't understand about Edward Said, it seems to me. He made the case also in the Middle East, about the importance of the intellectual it isn't only in the united states but also the middle east this is something that was not granted and is now more commonly understood there because of his efforts and his efforts alone
1: yeah absolutely and and the centrality of um you know culture to to politics um and and um Yeah, so um, I guess I mean that that pretty much wraps up um, you know all all of the questions that I've had and you know thank you so much for for talking with us and uh, thank you also to our listeners for joining us and for listening to the the new books and literary studies podcast Um, and again thank you thank you Timothy so much for for joining us and taking the time to talk with us Um,
0: yeah well thank you so much for inviting me it was really really enjoyable. Sure, and um,
1: yeah, congratulations on on the publication of this book. It's 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 a really great great com- contribution.
0: Well, thank you, thank you.